Well, uh, as Josh said, I'm Brad. I'm one of the rookie elders uh, here, along with Joel. Um, and I think he set the bar too high when he said I would bring the heat. So uh, I am going to say right off the bat, I'm extremely nervous. So uh, I just pray that I don't stumble through my words as we go. Um, but if you want, you can go ahead and turn to Jonah. Uh, that's in the Old Testament. And uh, he's a minor prophet. Uh, I want to speak out of the Old Testament. Uh, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite classes was Old Testament interpretation. And one of the things I love so much about that class is you study the Old Testament and you get to see the Old Testament is where you learn all about God's attributes, uh, God's character. Um, it's where so many truths can be drawn out um, and applied to your life through the Old Testament. So we're going to look at Jonah. Um, and hopefully going through Jonah, you'll see it's not necessarily the, the Sunday school story um, that most of us know. Um, so I'll give the Cliff Notes version of the Jonah story that I knew from, from growing up uh, real quick. It's basically Jonah was called by God to go to Nineveh. He disobeyed um, and went on a ship to go the opposite direction. While he's on the ship, the storm comes up and the sailors draw lots and they see that it's Jonah. So they throw him overboard and his punishment is a fish that comes and eats him or swallows him. And inside the belly of the fish, Jonah prays and God hears his prayer, forgives him, spits him up. And then Jonah goes to Nineveh. Everybody gets saved. The end. Happy story. Um, but I think going through Jonah, you'll see that it's, it's really completely different than that. Um, so we'll go, and I will tell you, we're going to read a lot. Uh, we're actually going to go through the entire book of Jonah. Um, so I hope you like to read. It should be back there. Um, but a couple things about the book real quick. It's a minor pro- one of the minor prophets, and um, it's different in the fact that it's a prophet, but it's not full of prophecies by the prophet. Actually, the only thing in this book that we have from Jonah is a prayer or a psalm that he prays. Um, and really the only prophecies we have from Jonah are from 2 Kings, and he prophesies about uh, Israel's border along the north growing. So we really just don't have much about uh, Jonah prophesying. Um, two, it's an account of the greatest, one of the greatest revivals in the history. 120,000 people were saved. Um, and finally about the book, I do not believe this book to be a parable. Um, Christ himself understood and recognized this to be literal, uh, when he spoke in Matthew about Jonah being in the belly well for three days and he would be in the tomb for three days. Um, so I don't look at this to be a parable at all. Um, so the star of the book of Jonah generally is the fish. Um, the fish is not the star of this book. Um, so don't get caught up in the fish. Um, one of the things I think you have to realize is the book is more than a fish. It's only mentioned twice in the entire book. Um, and a lot of people debate whether, you know, a fish could swallow a man and him live to, about, live to tell about it. And uh, when I was in seminary, I was writing a, a paper on Jonah. And when I was doing my studies, obviously the first thing I wanted to do was go to the Internet and try to find an account of somebody, somebody being swallowed by a fish that could live to tell about it. And while I'm looking through this, I come across this, this journal uh, from a guy who had, who had written some stuff on Jonah. And in his journal, basically it says he was doing the same thing I was, trying to look for true accounts of somebody being swallowed by a fish that lived to tell about it. 
And what he said is, I'm doing that, and then I realized if I actually find an account of somebody being swallowed by a fish, then that completely negates this being a miracle by God, and it becomes something that just randomly happens from time to time. Um, I kept looking. I never found anything. So, um, But what I can tell you is, if God can create the universe, um, you have to think of creation for a second. I, I did a study earlier this year on creation and got wrapped up in it. And C.S. Lewis, uh, I was reading one, uh, actually an essay he wrote on creation. And one of the things he was saying was, think about creating for a second. We can't create anything. There is absolutely nothing that we can create. Anything that we make comes from something else. Um, and then his essay, he challenged you to think of, think of a color you've never seen before. You can't do it. Uh, and I think when you think about God created everything in the entire universe, uh, if he wanted to, he could make a fish swallow a man. Um, and if it's something you don't believe, I, I think you know, a lot of people, uh, it's a matter of faith, um, but God sent himself down here in the form of a bondservant down on the cross and rose from the dead. We put our faith in that. We can't believe he swallowed a fish. I mean, made a fish swallow a man. Uh, so I think it's just a matter of faith. And like I said, not going to get caught up in the fish. I want to say that. It's not a story of fish, but it's a story of God's mercy and grace. Um, so, um, so before we actually get into the book, I think one of the greatest things uh, that we can find in Jonah, uh, it's not the message to Nineveh, uh, but it's what we can take from it today and what we can learn from the book. We learn about God's attributes. We'll see some of them in here. Uh, his character, and then we can see ourselves in this character. Um, so as we go through the book, think about it. I'll pull out some stuff, but um, where, are you, where do you see Jonah uh, in yourself? Um, so we'll go ahead. I'm going to start reading chapter 1, and I'll stop a little bit and say a couple things. But uh, verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against us, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid a fare, went on board to go to, the, go to, go to them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Um, one thing just in this first little paragraph, uh, the arise go that God commands of Jonah right there, that is an extreme command. It, it's not something where Jonah would have heard that and thought to himself, I can wait a little while. It's in a, com a command of urgency uh, to get up and go. And in that same sentence, you see, you see call out against it. We'll see that same sentence come up in chapter 3. Uh, in the English Standard Version, it's the same words, but most, most Bible versions uh, translate it different. And there's a reason in this, in this first chapter to call out against it has a tone. Um, it's a tone of no repentance. It's like a threat. It's a very threatening tone uh, that he's saying to him. Um, their evil has come up before me. Uh, this kind of stood out to me um, in that just like we know that God knows everything. So if you read this, it kind of comes off as like all of a sudden God, God was made aware of their evil. Um, but that's not the case at all. I'm not going to try to say the Hebrew word for it. Uh, but they would have understood, stay, uh, understood this to mean uh, that it's in full cognitive knowledge and in the full mental view of somebody. So there was never a time where this evil was all of a sudden made known to God. It was always there. Now, with that word, they would have read it and understood it to mean 
that their evil had gotten so bad that it had actually raised up and into the presence of God. And that's why he's uh, condemning them right there. Um, so we get to see a little bit of God's omniscience right there um, and that he's fully aware all the time of what's going on. Okay? So Jonah decides to flee. Um, so I think when you look at that, there's three reasons that all the commentaries and journals and stuff I read uh, talk about what would be the reasons to flee. Um, one, you need to know a little bit about Nineveh. At this time, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, and Assyria isn't a, war, a world-dominant force yet, but they're beginning to be. Um, and they're, they're basically fighting little battles with Israel all over, and they were ruthless. They would come in. You weren't allowed to stay in your city. You had to go. They would take over. You were on your own. And actually, in some of the accounts I have, it says uh, kings of Assyria uh, would actually take their prisoners and skin them and wrap them across their walls as a threat. Um, and some of the kings uh, in their palaces would take the nobles and the kings of the cities they conquered and would actually have them on stakes to where when you walked up to the king, you were walking past all these people. Um, so I think that gives reason for somebody not to want to go to Nineveh um, off the bat. Um, another reason, God's asking Jonah really to go and proclaim his word to somebody who's not uh, an Israelite, which this hasn't, it's not known to them at this time. Um, actually, some of the commentaries are read, so this might possibly be the first time that God's asking somebody to go make disciples. Um, so it's kind of unheard of right now. Um, but I think as we go through, one of the, the main things you'll see that come out is that I think it comes down to Jonah was basically just a consumer prophet. He was totally given over to the idea that salvation belonged to Israel and didn't think it belonged to anybody else. And he was resistant to that going to another political power. And I think, you know, we might not think of it in terms like that, but we do, uh, we do question sometimes how could God's grace go to somebody who uh, attacks us or who believes different than we do. And when you look at it, uh, most of God's judgment fell on his own people for consuming his grace throughout history. Um, so not on the unbelievers around us. Um, God's a missionary God, um, and that's what he's looking for. I had a professor in seminary of evangelism and missions, and uh, one of the things he always used to say was, Christianity is not for us and ours. Christianity is for them and theirs. Um, and I, I think when you look at that, um, I don't know where he got it from, but thinking about that, it's, it's challenging you to get outside of your bubble. We get comfortable in these bubbles, and we've got to go and make Christianity for them and theirs. Um, I think it's a call for all of us, and I think it's a call that Jonah had, and we'll see that he kind of uh, disobeyed it. Um, going back to chapter 1, one thing I looked over, uh, the, last, the last verse, fleeing from the presence of the Lord, um, kind of the same thing, just one thing. Obviously, Jonah couldn't flee from the presence of the Lord, but really what that's saying is Jonah basically was saying, I quit. He was turning in his mantle. He's basically saying, I'm not a prophet anymore. You take it. I'm gone. I quit. Um, so he's quitting right there. He's not, in essence, just trying to say, I'm, I'm going to leave and you can't see him. He's basically saying, you go be in Nineveh, but I myself, Jonah, I'm not going to be there. Um, so, so verse 4, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. There was a high, mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, 
and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down in the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us and that he may not perish. So Jonah decides to flee, and this great storm comes up. And what's interesting to note here is the sailors immediately start crying out to their God. I think that's important because they knew right away that this was not just a normal storm, that this was somebody had done something, and this was brought on by a divine force. Um, And you've got Jonah, who's in the belly of the ship sleeping, and the sailors are going into the belly of the ship. That's where all the supplies are, taking them, throwing out, and they find him sleeping. So immediately they kind of start to start to realize that, you know, something's not right. This may be our guy. So we'll read 7. Um, and they said to one another, Come let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lots fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? Where is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you. O Lord, have done as has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to them. So, one of the things in, in this time period, all gods were associated with a place. Um, so you had the, the god of the sky, the god of the water. Um, you know, it's just a lot of pagan worship. But when Jonah defined Yahweh as the god of heaven that made earth and land, they knew immediately that this was a universal god that he was talking about. They might not have fully understood uh, the god, but... They knew that this was a universal God that had power over any of their gods. And that's why their response is, you know, what have you done? You idiot is basically what they're saying is, you know, the power of your God. And yet you run away and you've brought this upon us. Um, So they know that he's running from God. He tells them, yeah, it's my fault. He got the lot. He tells them, throw me overboard and everything will be good. And still you see these sailors trying to have compassion. They try to roll back to land. But it, the uh, storm got worse and worse, um, so they eventually threw him over. Um, so the only thing Jonah has said to them at this point is that he's trying to flee the Lord. Um, and I, I can't help to think the sailors throw Jonah overboard, the, co- the sea stop, and the last thing that it ends with is they immediately give thanksgiving, they begin to worship Jonah's God, and they immediately grasp what all has just happened. But yet Jonah's sitting there, and the last thing he sees is a calm sea with a boat full of pagan and Gentile, or pagan and Gentile sailors who are worshiping his God. And I just wonder if there was, how could he not have a chain, 
uh, change of heart at that moment when you see that. And um, the reason I say is whenever I was in college, uh, I played in this little band, and we used to travel around a good bit. And we got hooked up with this youth group in Iowa. And uh, we had been going there. Um, we'd go once or twice a year for a couple of years. Well, one of the times we were there, um, one of the kids in there, and this is a small town in Iowa. It's called Winterset. Uh, it's the birthplace of John Wayne, if you want to know. And it's, it's where they filmed Bridges of Madison County. Uh, very, very small town. But in this youth group, uh, there was a kid who was an atheist. And he was a nice kid. He came to all the events. Uh, and I really think it's just because there wasn't anything else to do there. Um, but one of the trips we were there, we were just hanging out, and we were staying at the youth minister's house, and we were having coffee with this kid one day, and just talking to him, and basically talking to him, getting him to go through and just read the Gospels. Because um, I think there's one thing, you know, atheists are going to say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in that, but you can't, you can't deny the historical Jesus. It actually happened. I mean, there's too many historical documents. So getting him to read about this man, Jesus, is what we were trying to do. And the last day we were there, um, we were actually getting ready to leave. This kid comes running around the corner, and he's literally got one of those like coffee table Bibles, like the kind that we would be embarrassed to carry. And he's screaming to the top of his lungs. He's like, I love this guy. This Jesus, I love him. I don't believe in him, but I love him. So, you know, he says that. I didn't think much of it until I get home and I realize that here's a guy who doesn't believe in Christ that has more passion for him than I do. You know? And I can't help to think, how does that not register with Jonah? These pagans are worshiping his God. He's still callous and still sitting there floating away. I'm going to go fast. There's a lot of stuff. So, sorry. <laughs> so verse 17, the star of the story. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Jonah was in the belly of fish three days and three nights. So one thing to note, this is not a punishment. This fish is not a punishment. It's an answered prayer. Jonah was, he was dead. This is an answered prayer. Um, but we get to see a little bit of God's sovereignty right here and the fact that God had appointed a fish. He knew what was going to happen. He had the fish ready. Actually, one of the uh, commentaries I read said this fish was in exactly the right place at the right time by God's command in order to swallow Jonah and keep him safe. All right? So we get to chapter 2. And this is where Jonah's prayer comes. Now, this is the part in the Sunday school story where you hear Jonah repents, God forgives him, spits him up on land. I'm going to kind of go through the prayer a little bit pretty fast, and then we'll kind of just talk about a couple things in it. Um, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your ways and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look upon your holy temple. The waters close in over me and take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed up upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord my God, when my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who paid regard to vain items forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, just reading that, that prayer sound, sounds great, but let's look at it a little more. 
when you look at this, you'll see that it's a very shallow prayer. Um, it's, it's a self-centered prayer of no repentance. Um, the prayer focuses on Jonah and all that he's going through. When you look back at the Psalms, you'll see that God is the basis for all their praise, adoration, and obedience. Uh, Jonah alludes to the sovereignty of God in this prayer, but it's a distorted view. Um, his view of sovereignty is saying, yeah, Lord, um, you're over the waves and they're crashing in over me. But he's saying it's because of your sovereignty. That's why the storm's here and that's why I'm in the position I'm in. It's not that I sinned against you, so this is the position I'm in. He has a very distorted view of God's sovereignty in this. Um, this prayer also shows um, his feelings for the Gentiles still. If you look in verse 8, those who, who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope and steadfast love. For the voice of th- uh, thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. So he assumes himself to still be elite because he worships God, but it's in chapter 1 where the Gentiles, they're the ones who were eager to uncover sin. They're the ones who had compassion on Jonah. Um, They proved to be superior than Jonah in the beginning. Um, And Jonah fails to see his disobedience. He fails to see that that is as offensive as the idolatry of the Gentiles. We see... In 1 Samuel 15, you got Samuel talking to King Saul. He says, Has the Lord much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Um, So Jonah's just got a skewed view. He's still trying to to say like, those Gentiles, they worship idols. I will go and offer you a sacrifice of praise when they're the ones who are already praising God. Um, Another thing in this prayer, nowhere in here does he say, you know, I'm going to go to Nineveh and finish out what we're doing. Um, He says, well, the voice of thanksgiving uh, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. First of all, the vow that he will pay was that he was a prophet. And remember, he quit. All he's saying is basically... Let's forget about this. This is a misunderstanding. I'll go back to Jerusalem. I'll be a prophet again. And we'll just forget about this whole Nineveh thing. And we'll be good to go. Nowhere in here does he say, I'll go to Nineveh. We'll make it right. Um, a clue to that is in chapter 3, which we'll get to in a second. God has to command him to go to Nineveh again. Uh, just the fact that God has to tell him again lets you know that he wasn't going. And then the salvation belongs to the Lord that's not an encompassing salvation like we would experience. He's speaking of the fact that the fish came and saved him from dying. He was saved from the Lord. It's not like a, a big salvation. It's basically saying, the fish saved me. Thank you. Um, so I think when you look at this, there's no repentance. Um, there's nothing that says, you know, I'm going to make this right and go to Nineveh. Um, but, but I think one thing that we can pull out of this is that we can see that God's means of saving us are sometimes not the way we'd have, we would have chosen. Um, I think when you look at it, Jonah really wasn't thinking of a fish to come and save him, but it did the job. Um, you can look at Egypt, 400, I mean, uh, being in uh, slaves of Egypt for 400 years, probably not man's first choice, but it did the job. Entering the Red Sea, the River Jordan, it did the job. Um, trusting in the death, burial, and resurrection of a rejected king, that's not man's um, preferred means of finding forgiveness, but it's God's and it did the job. 
Uh, God does not save us according to our preferences, but He saves us according to His provision. And I think that's a big thing we can learn from this, um, from that prayer. Um, the means that God has provided for us was His Son. Like I said, it was a rejected king. Man, it's not, it's not, the, it's not what man was looking for, but it's what God provided. So he spoke to the fish and uh, spit him up. That's the end of chapter 2. <laughs> chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Right quick, that same arise. That's the exact same arise from chapter 1. Like I said before, he never said he was going back to Nineveh. If he did, why would God have to command him with such urgency again to go to Nineveh? And then this is the... Uh, call out against it again. This is what I was saying. Most translations have it different, but in the Hebrew, this um, this message this time, the first time was a very threatening judgment. This time, this message is more of a positive tone, and uh, it's more of a call to repentance for Nineveh. Um, some of the commentaries I read said uh, it, it's it's just to emphasize what God's intentions were, or it simply makes his original intention more clear uh, while God threatened to judge Nineveh, he was very willing to relent and forgive them if they repented of their sins. Um, so with that, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with a sackcloth, and sat in ashes, as he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out to mighty God. Let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hand. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn, from his, and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So Jonah goes, but based on what we've seen before and what we know how his feelings are towards the Gentiles or the Ninevites, um, I can't imagine that him portraying God's message, he, I just can't imagine that he's being very excited with it. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Um, the message is to the point, and it's frightening, um, but, but that's about it. I mean, but I think that shows just the power and the plan that God had to do that. He took eight words, eight words, and 120,000 people came to know Christ. Yet 40 days, and no one will be overthrown. The people took these words seriously based on the text. They turned to God, but it started from the bottom up. The king made a decree, but by the time word had gotten to the king, the people had already started fasting and covering themselves in sackcloth. Um, and then when it got to the king, he put out a decree and still called for a fast in the sackcloth. Um, the sackcloth is, a, is just, a, it just represents uh, the slaves or the poor people back then wore sackcloths. So when all the people and the kings are putting on sackcloths, it's just signifying that they are now slaves to God. Um, so two interesting things about this. From what we have, 
the people didn't even have to be told what their wicked ways were. They just repented. So they knew they knew they weren't right, and it was a quick repentance. You know, they could have taken that message and just they could have said, Hey, we've got forty days. Let's eat, drink, be merry, see what happens in forty days. We're probably dead anyway. But when you look at verse nine, it says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn his turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the reason that they had that change of heart, um, they wanted to, to see. Um, that was their choice. Their choice was to follow God. So, Jonah's heart still hasn't changed. So what was the purpose of God saving Jonah? I think it's two things. God showed Jonah grace, for one, because that's what God does. And also, he's keeping Jonah alive so that he could complete the plan that he had in place. This is one thing I think we can sit on for a second or two or until I run out of notes on it. Um, but I think with our church and the demographic or the age group we have, this is something that we really get caught up in is what is God's plan for our life? Um, which leads to anxiety, which we've been talking about week after week. It keeps coming up. And I I don't think we can get around it, and I think there's a reason for us, but you can't, based on this and what we know, God has a plan. You can't do anything to mess that plan up. So, why do we worry so much about it in the first place? Why do we put so much stress into trying to figure out what that plan is? Um, do not hear me say that you can do whatever you want. It's not what I'm saying. You can look at Jonah. Jonah had consequences for not obeying. But if we look at what we talked about in community groups in the spring, we went through all the attributes of God love, and we really take that for what it means. He's faithful. He's full of love. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. This is a God that doesn't live or doesn't see things moment by moment. He stands outside of time. He doesn't see past. He doesn't see future. Wayne Grudem describes it as God sees everything as an eternal present. It just happens. He just sees it. That's how it goes. If we look at this and we buy into that He's full of love, why do we get so caught up in that anxiety of trying to figure out the future? Um, each month, the elders, we go through um, different prayers that we, we study through and we pray through for an entire month. And um, about two months ago, this is one of the things that I really got stuck on was people worrying about plans for their life and not not living now. And if you remember Vernon last week, one of the things Vernon said was, anxiety always has us thinking of the future and steals your desire to live in the present. Um, I'm going to read Ephesians. This was the prayer. Um, it's Ephesians 3, 14 through 21. It'll be up there. You don't, you don't have to turn to it. But this is the prayer that has stuck with me for our church and that I still pray for our church all the time. It says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know that the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly 
than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's been my prayer for us. And I think when you look at this, there's things to note that Paul's praying this for the Ephesian church and nowhere in this prayer is he praying for prosperity for the church. He's not praying for prevention, removal, or quick relief from pain. He's not praying for for being healed or well-being. He's not being prayed for emotional or psychological well-being. And he's not praying for an ecstatic experience. Um, These are the things we pray for. And these are the things we get caught up in. Um, These are the things I pray for. Um, But Paul is praying for the things that God has purposed and promised and which He will has assured us He will accomplish to His glory. He's praying for the inner man that's being renewed daily, not the outer man who's dying daily. Um, He wants them to trust in the faithfulness of God and to understand this love of God. And actually, in here you see, he says, what is the breadth and length, the height and depth? Basically, this is the no love is higher, wider, deeper, truer. And then he realizes, man, I'm trying to explain God in human terms, but I can't. So the very next sentence, he says, it surpasses your knowledge. You can't comprehend it anyway. Um, A quote from another journal I think is really good with this. It says, God's love is the starting point. It's also the lifelong pursuit of the saint and is the goal. The love of God is infinite, boundless. Exploring the love of God is something like studying the universe. The more of it you know, the more of it we find is still unmapped and unexplored. We can spend our whole lives exploring its boundaries, but then discover that we have not pressed its true boundaries at all. Paul knows that if he can get the Ephesian church to grasp this concept of God's love, that all this other stuff doesn't matter. There's no reason to have anxiety whenever you think, this is the God of love, I'm going to trust in His faithfulness, and that's it. That's it. That's all you need to focus on. Um, Psalm 145 says, Love is so great, I can search and never discover how great. And even in this prayer, you can read prayers from Paul all throughout, and he talks about how you'll never be able to understand this love that God has. Um, and we as a church, if we believe this, then why do we let this anxiety bind us? Why, why can we not live in freedom? Um, I think last week, um, y'all are blowing the roof off of this place, screaming about chains being broken. Think about what would happen if you put that into action and don't just sing it. Think about what's going to happen in this church. Um, I, I know I can't wait to see when that actually we have an anxiety-free church, and I just think it's no coincidence that this keeps coming up. It's not like myself, Joel, Vernon, and Josh got together and said, hey, let's just speak on anxiety for a couple Sundays every three months. Um, it just keeps coming up. So there's something stirring in here, and I can't wait to see um, what happens when we can truly live in that fullness of God and the freedom of the now. Um, but please don't hear me say that praying for specific things is bad. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but when that's all you think about, that's when that anxiety comes into play. Think if you remember Joel's message two months ago, just be the bird flying in the matrix, you know, just don't worry about anything. They're, they're taken care of, so. I'm sorry, that's probably really bad. <laughs> all right. All right, this is the home stretch. This is the last little reading. All right, so chapter four. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, And he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, 
For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, so to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from the discomfort. So Jonah was seemingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun arose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? He said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the Lord from their right hand, from their left, and also as much cattle. So, kind of ends a little weird right there. Um, And I'll say, this part right here, never heard this part in Sunday school. Never. Um, So I think when you look in chapter 3, you know, they became to a knowledge of God, Nineveh did. Um, He didn't heed the words of the uh, Ninevites. Uh, It wasn't the sackcloth, it wasn't the fasting. He took note of genuine repentance from them. And it's because of that, Jonah's angry. Jonah's not angry at himself. He's not angry at the men. He's angry at God because God acted completely consistent with his character, which is exactly what Jonah knew he would do. Um, Jonah has a huge issue, um, and I think the root of it is unforgiveness. Um, Like I said, the Syrians are plucking little towns from Israel away, and by the end of the century, not yet, not in this story, but by the end of the century, Assyria is the most dominant uh, force in the world. They're not there yet, but they're getting there. Um, and Jonah has this, this unforgiveness to him, and it's, it's made him completely bitter towards them, towards Gentile, and he just has this disdain that, God, you are for Israel and nothing else. Um, so, I think if you look, Matthew 18, you don't have to turn there, I'm not going to read the whole parable, um, but it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Just give you the Cliff Notes version right here. Um, Jonah has a huge problem with unforgiveness, and just see how we can apply that. Um, but basically, the parable of the unforgiving servant: uh, the king calls in the servants, and he wants to go ahead and pay their debt. Well, the first servant owes—I mean, I don't, crazy amount of money, ten thousand talents, um, which I don't—I don't remember how much it is, but it's a lot. Something I think it was like fifteen years it would take him to pay off. Um, and the servant says, I don't have it. Well, the king tells him, you know, okay. And the king actually wipes his debt. The servant begs him and says, I'll pay it back, I promise. The king actually wipes his debt out. So then that servant goes to his servants, and he's trying to collect his money. One of his servants says, I don't have the money. That servant throws that servant in jail. Is that easy to follow? There's a lot of servants. Well, when the king finds out what's happened, he calls that original servant in, and he puts him in jail because he forgave him. And I think the big thing from this is uh, 34 and 35, the end, it says, And in anger his master delivered him to the jailers till, she, until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. I think one thing we can pull from this is pretty clear that 
a willing, an unwillingness to forgive is a sign that heaven's not in your future. Um, Jonah is extremely bitter, as we can see, and that bitterness stems from that unforgiveness. Um, some of the things on bitterness, um, some symptoms, I guess, of bitterness that you can see, and I'm sure we can see these in our life right now, and if this rings a bell with you, I challenge you to, to really think about where that's coming from. But symptoms of bitterness. There's a jealousy is a symptom of bitterness. Jealousy consists of a combination of presenting emotions such as anger, sadness, or resentment and disgust. If you have that, that inward bitterness to somebody, it's a sign you need to think about some forgiveness. Um, another big one, gossip. Um, spreading information or breaking somebody down. Um, uh, we as Christians have come up with a, a new word for gossip or a synonym. Uh, we call it prayer request. And you know what I'm talking about. You've either been a part of it or maybe you've been somebody who's done it. But that's an inward sign of bitterness that you need to think about. Might need some forgiveness. There's an outer war where you, you just love the fact when somebody else fails. And on the other side, there's an inner war. Face to face, you're perfectly fine with this person. You're happy go look at your friends, but on the inside, whenever they fail, you love it. That's an inward sign of bitterness that is, lets you know that there is some forgiveness that needs to take place in that relationship. Rob Turner decide, uh, defines, or doesn't define, but this is what he says of bitterness. He says, bitterness is like drinking a poison and waiting for someone else to die. Um, if that's you, there's some forgiveness that needs to take place. Now with that, we all need forgiveness. Um, there's never been a prayer that we have prayed well, we don't need forgiveness. But we have to know how to give that forgiveness first. Um, I think if you look, the starting point of that forgiveness has to come to the cross. Um, none of these are going to be up there, but if you look at Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender heart, or forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Ephesians 5.2, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. And then Colossians 3, 12 through 13, put on then as God's chosen one, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. God has an endless supply of forgiveness for us, and we have to have that same endless supply of forgiveness for everyone out, for everyone else. But we tap into this endless supply of forgiveness through our repentance. It doesn't happen unless you repent first. We can look back at this. Jonah never repented, and he has no clue how to tap into this forgiveness um, through the Gentiles. Um, and that's how the story, that's how it ends. I said, it's, it's not the, the Sunday school story I remember. Um, it doesn't leave you with a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Um, it leaves you with no solution to Jonah's problem, no solution to his sin. It, it really ends just like the Old Testament. There's no solution to Israel's sin when the Old Testament ends. There's just nothing happy about it. Um, but I think there's a lot that we can pull out and apply to ourselves today um, with this, everything we just talked about. Uh, we can see, learn about ourselves, our relationships to others, relationships to God, and how we need to trust through what Jonah did. Um, you know? And that's really it. That's the end of the story. Um, so... I'm not as smooth as Josh, I'm sorry. Uh, the band can come on and come up.
And, uh, you know, we're going to do like we normally do with the ring. Um, we're going to have our response time and, and sing a little bit. But I think some of the things to look at in this response time is just, you know, ask yourself, um, are you responding to maybe you're the one living the selfish Christian life that you're not going for them and theirs? Uh, you're living in this bubble and scared to get out of it. Um, you know, maybe you're struggling with the anxiety that you're the one that needs to completely trust in the faithfulness of God and break free from this anxiety. Remember, no love is higher, deeper, truer. It's what it says. We can never comprehend the amount of love Christ has for us, so why can't we trust in that? Why can't we trust in His faithfulness? Maybe there's some relationships that need forgiveness in here. Um, you know, you, you might need to go call somebody and make things right, but just remember that repentance needs to come first. Um, and, and maybe for some of you, your response is that, I just don't have a response. None of this applies to me. And if that's you, I would say you're probably a lot like Jonah, and I've just given you a response for your no response. Um, so I hope, I hope that I was able to put this together and maybe it, it brought to light just the Jonah story and really how much it, it, it applies to us daily. And there's so much more to pull out from that, but I just feel like that, I mean, I feel like that's what we needed for tonight. Um, so I don't know how this relates to you, but, but I hope you can walk away with something from this tonight. And, uh, that's it. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond like we, like we normally do. So Lord, I just thank you for tonight. Um, I thank you for giving us Old Testament stories where we can really study about your attributes and just learn about your character and see the many truths that we can pull out and how they apply to us in our, in our lives today, Lord. And, I just pray, pray that tonight is, was fruitful and that lives will be changed going forward. Mm-hmm.